invite you to take your Bibles now, or take one from the pew rack in front of you, and turn to Psalm 78, or if you're using the pew Bible, to page 707, 707 in the pew Bible, Psalm 78, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply, raising children who are confident in God is today's title. I'll read the first eight verses of this psalm with you, and we'll focus in then on verses 4 through 7. A masculine of Asaph. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, and that they should put their confidence in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Lord, this is a sacred calling that you give to the covenant community. So to teach, and so to discipline, and so to rear, so to model that the next generation comes to put their confidence in God and not in themselves. And so I pray that you would advance that calling among us. I pray that today's service would be a watershed for us in ministry, through parenting, and teaching children at Bethlehem Baptist Church. I pray that we would hear, as we've never heard before, what our duties are and what our calling is and what the hope is in this great matter. So guard us now from Satan who would pluck this word off the path before it could even sink. Grant my mouth to speak the truth with love and with boldness and with clarity and biblical faithfulness. And I pray that hearts and minds would be docile and that we would be shaped by your vision of what it is to lead the next generation into the things of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Woe to us if we are so fixated on our own children and their welfare that we neglect to evangelize the lost neighbors around us and reach the lost nations 
of the world. Woe to us if we put our children as gods on a pedestal instead of having Christ on that pedestal. Woe to us if we do not hear and believe and act on Matthew 20, no, Matthew 19, verse 29. Everyone who leaves houses or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake will receive back 100-fold and in the age to come eternal life. We simply must come to terms with the words of Jesus that there may be a time and a place in the ministry where you leave children. Our own children are not our highest value. Christ is our highest value. And the call of Christ on us relativizes two great creation ordinances. One is marriage and the other is parenting. Let me illustrate. The creation ordinance of marriage is very clear. God said it is not good for man to be alone. He created woman. Then he said in verse 24 of Genesis 2, a man shall leave his mother and his father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. This is a good thing. Nevertheless, Paul says in these last days, as the kingdom is breaking into the world and spreading, filling the world, that he wishes every Christian were like he is, namely single. Because there comes with singleness, as Paul experienced it, an undistracted devotion to the Lord. He concedes that marriage is not a sin. Thank you, Paul. He concedes that it is not a sin. Nevertheless, though it is good to be married, he says, yes, okay, it is good to be married. But for the sake of the in-breaking kingdom in these last days, it may be better for many to be single. And thus he relativizes the creation ordinance. It is not good for man to be alone. Secondly, if that's true for marriage, it must be true for parenting as well. Psalm 127.3 Children are called an inheritance from the Lord, a reward. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. But if marriage is not ultimate, parenting cannot be ultimate either. If the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into the world relativizes the ideal of marriage, it also relativizes the ideal of parenthood. There will be God-ordained, Christ-exalting, kingdom-advancing strategies for parents that are not built around the ideal comforts of their children, that are not built around ideal securities, that are not built around earthly possibilities and pedagogical excellence for their children 
There will be times when Jesus says, for my sake, you leave your children, and no doubt leaving them will involve a less than ideal home situation for them, and it is less than ideal, and it is right. God is able, as many of you can testify, God is able to do more than we dream through the painful circumstances created for our children by following a radical call. The word he uses is 100-fold. 100-fold! If you leave me. I mention this only to say again, woe to us if we become so fixated on the welfare of our children that they become our God. We can no longer hear the meaning of Jesus when he says, unless a person for my sake leave children, cannot be my disciple. Now having said that by way of a warning, a kind of yellow warning banner, over the rest of this message. Let's now devote this message to what then is the call of God upon this church for those children we just saw up here. What is our duty? What is our calling toward this amazing stewardship that the Lord has called us to as parents and as single people in this church and as a community? What Does it mean for children to be a part of the covenant, the new covenant community? Now, there are those who believe that children are members of the covenant community, and that is why they baptize them. Presbyterians, with whom theologically we have very much in common, being reformed as we are, baptize their infants because they understand that when a child is born into a new covenant nuclear family, that child, by virtue of that birth, becomes a part of the new covenant community family, the church. And why would you withhold from a member of the covenant community the sign of the covenant, namely baptism. We believe that this is a flawed understanding of the new covenant community. We believe that the new covenant community is created by the second birth, not the first birth. We believe that the sign of the covenant, baptism, is to be given to those who are born of the Spirit into a spiritual family, not those who are born of the flesh into a physical family. That's what makes us Baptists. John the Baptist commanded those who had already been circumcised. Now mark this. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant under the old covenant. They had already received the sign of the covenant into the covenant community. John the Baptist comes along and commands these people who have already received the sign of the covenant to be baptized now 
as a sign of entering a new spiritual community within that old covenant community. A community now of repentant sinners. Be baptized with a baptism of repentance. We believe that Jesus continued and commanded the practice of John the Baptist. That is why Peter stood up and addressed 3,000 circumcised Jews on Pentecost and said, repent and be baptized. The new covenant community, the church, is not something you are born into according to the flesh. It is something you are born into according to the spirit. The evidence of this birth, this new birth, is faith and repentance. And the sign that the church, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bestows upon this evidence of faith is baptism. So the question then for us Baptists is, where do children fit in? It's very neat. Well, it's really not very neat. I don't want to be too critical here, but it's not quite as neat for the Presbyterians and the others because... They do have a problem with the Lord's Supper, but we won't go into that, uh, but we can talk about it later. Most of them do not give the covenant children the Lord's Supper until after confirmation, and that's a little bit inconsistent, like they say, we're inconsistent, not giving them baptism before, you know, because they're, but we all have our problems. We're all struggling to be faithful to Scripture. Now, I want to try to give an account for, for us Baptists where children fit into the covenant life of the church. If they're not members of the covenant community, which they are not in my judgment, this is a spiritual community into which you come by new birth and faith, not by being born of the flesh into anyone's family. Here's the, I would use three images for you to describe our children. First, I would call them wards of the New Covenant. Wards of the New Covenant community. Here's a second one. They are kept by a spiritual guardianship awaiting the day of their awakening to faith in Christ. There is a spiritual guardianship appointed for the New Covenant community as children are born into the families of the New Covenant community. And third... Their attachment to a Christian family, say my four sons and daughter, the, the attachment to a Christian family at the natural level obliges a community foster care at the spiritual level. There are special, clear, biblical obligations that bind us to our children, not because they are covenant members, before they have faith, but because God gives us a mandate to lead them to faith. They are our words. Our, we are their spiritual guardians. We have a spiritual foster care from the standpoint of the covenant community. To be born into the new covenant family does not make, or to be born into a new covenant family, say the piper, Family. To be born into a new covenant family does not make a child a member of the new covenant community. It makes the new covenant community the spiritual guardian 
of the child. Which now sets the stage for asking what the mandate of that guardianship is. If we are spiritual guardians for those children you saw up here, if they are the wards of the New Covenant community, what then are we biblically obliged to do? Now, in this text, I see six stages of our calling. In verses 4 through 7, and I invite you to follow with me as I unpack them for you. This is a mini theology of children's ministries or a mini philosophy of Christian education, what we are hearing this morning from this text. Six stages in our calling as a new covenant community toward those in our spiritual charge. Number one, the first stage is God. It all begins with God. Verse four, second half of the verse. We will tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. All Christian parenting and all Christian education begins with God. There is one ultimate unchanging reality in the universe, and education has to do with reality. There is one unchanging ultimate reality in the universe, and that is God. All education that omits God omits the main thing and is therefore superficial and distorted. God is the bottom and the center and the goal of all Christian and all true education. First and last and center is God. The main thing in how you rear children and how you teach children and how you discipline children is God. It all begins with God. It's all built on God. It all moves towards God. It's all shaped by God. If there is one memory that your children should have of your household growing up, it is this, God. I hope that when I'm dead and gone, my sons tell the story of the Piper household, that they will say, I don't remember much. I just remember it had to do with God. It had to do with the supremacy of God in all things. It was a God thing. Growing up in this house was a God thing. It was built on God. It was shaped by God. It was for God. The Word of God permeated it. That's the memory that our children should have of our hopes. That's stage number one, God. Stage number two. God has spoken and given a deposit of truth to be handed on. And so truth is the second stage. Verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. So God has done two things. He has testified... God has not left himself without a witness. He has witnessed and he has taught. 
The, the Hebrew word for law, Torah, means instruction. That's all it means. Instruction, teaching. So God has testified on his behalf in the world, and he has taught on his behalf in the world. He has not been a silent God, and that is now in a book, the Bible. The Bible is the way that God in these last days has spoken to us in a clear and authoritative way. God is more important than anything, and if God is more important than anything, the Bible is more important than anything except God. The Word of God, the testimony and the instruction of God preserved for us in a book is the most important thing under God. It is a deposit that is very, very precious. Now, let this sink in. I said this to the pastors at the pastors' conference, that the fact that the Word of God has come to us in a book has unspeakably important implications for pastoring, but this morning, for parenting unspeakable implications that God Almighty comes to us through a book. Implication number one. I'll just mention two. It means that the Bible will be the sun in the solar system of all of our educational efforts with our children. It will be not one among many books. Say, well, there's the Bible, and then there's the dictionary, and then there's the encyclopedia, and then there's the math books, and the English books, and the history books, and then there's just one among many. Wrong! It's a bad image. You've got a sun that gives light, and you've got all these dark planets that need light. That's the image. This is the sun in the solar system of education. Everything else is cruising around it. This is the center. It gives light. It gives perspective. It gives basis. It opens. It gives the meaning and shapes all else we do in our efforts to teach our children. It is an all-permeating foundation book. All the other books are to be judged by this book. All the other books will find their meaning in this book. And the worldview that this book opens up shows where all the other books fit. They just dangle meaninglessly in the world. If there's no worldview created by this book, where those other books fit so that they are a God-honoring education. It means that this book will be known first and this book will be known best for Christians. Do you know this book better than any other book? If you don't, you're out of bounds. I don't care what your vocation is and how much time you spend in literature or, or, or law or, or history or anthropology or business. If you know other books better than this book, you're out of balance as a Christian. This is the sun. This sheds light on everything. Every sentence in every other book gains its ultimate meaning from this book. And how will your children know that if you don't know it? That's implication number one. We know this book first. We know this book better than we know any other book. Here's the second implication of that. 
Because God has spoken in the book, there is a deposit of truth that we must preserve. There is an understanding of a book. These are not just words on a page. There's truth. There's a deposit. Paul said to Timothy, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. That's the task of parents. Guard the deposit of truth that has been entrusted to you. Preserve it and transmit it however you grasp it. However you grasp it. I mean, this is a thick book. Nobody knows this book by heart in this room. We've got to have some kind of way of getting a handle on the message of the book and hand it as a deposit to our children. We need to work at that. There's much room for improvement there. That's stage number two, the truth stage. Number three, in our calling as New Covenant community with our children, is the calling of teaching. Verse 5. He who established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, he has established it, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. We are commanded to teach the deposit to our children. It's not enough to preserve the deposit. We got Bibles. We got Bibles on the shelf. We gave Bibles to our children when they were little. It's not enough to preserve the deposit. We're called upon to teach the deposit. Ephesians 6 4 Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction, teaching of the Lord. We're called to instruct. Now, there's a huge implication for this for us. We take it for granted in America. We really do. We shouldn't. We should be more historically informed than to take it for granted. The implication of this third stage is that we will teach our children how to read. Since the testimony and the instruction of God is in a book, it means that we will labor to teach our children how to read. Read and write and arithmetic. Read and write and arithmetic. In that order. And if two have to go, writing and arithmetic, go. Okay? Reading is primary. Because God's Word is primary. And we may say, well, you can have it orally. You know, you can pass along orally. Well, maybe for a little while. Not very accurately, probably. The reason God ordained that apostles write the book down is because he distrusted oral transmission very much. And I do today. I'm not to be trusted. If you to get, get your only Bible from John Piper orally, you're making a big mistake. It's the book. And therefore, we would betray our children into the hands of error if we do not teach them how to read. Now, reading is no simple thing. Most people, when you say reading, you think that's what you do, four, five, six, and then you got it. Wrong. You don't got it. I'm still learning how to read. Every year I'm learning how to read. Because reading involves at least three things. One, it involves apprehending the ideas that attach to certain symbols. Letters, words, phrases, sentences. The ideas that attach to those symbols on a page. That's the simple basic stage. The second stage in reading is learning how 
the ideas attaching to those symbols relate to each other to make a message about reality. And the third stage of reading is assessing whether the ideas and messages being commended through the symbols is true or not. All of that is what reading means. Theory and arithmetic. If you got to have one thing, no reading. And if you can never write a word, at least be able to read. It is just, it's the center of everything in education and all of life to be able to apprehend meaning from texts and from spoken language. It is a precious thing that we cannot begin to overemphasize for our children. Teach them how to get meaning from texts. That is true. Stage number four. After God, truth, teaching comes knowing in the minds of the children. Knowledge. Learning. Verse six. We teach that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. So from teaching comes knowing. Now you might say, well, that's, isn't that just the same as what you just said? I mean, it sounds repetitious to distinguish learning from teaching. It's not repetitious, and it's not the same thing. There is a gulf, a huge gulf between learning and teaching. Let me give you two reasons why I stress this distinction between teaching on the side of parents and church and learning and knowing on the side of children. One is this. You cannot make a person learn. You can make yourself teach, but you cannot make anybody learn. You cannot force true knowledge. When the Bible speaks of knowing God, knowing his way, knowing his truth, it doesn't just mean mere memory or mere raw mental apprehension. It means seeing into the real beauty of what is true and embracing it for the beauty that it is. That's biblical knowing. You can't make that happen, parent. No parent on earth has ever made that happen. We can do our best. We can put God at the center of our lives. We can labor and love and sacrifice and pray and teach. But in the end, there is a chasm between the parent teaching and the child knowing. And only God bridges that chasm. Only God. If you think you can bridge that chasm, you are arrogant. and do not understand the dynamic of depravity or lostness, or blindness that is upon the human heart, the great distortions and death that reign over the human soul until God bridges the chasm of truth and opens the soul and the mind and the heart of a child to love the truth. No parent can do that. Why we are not finally responsible for the salvation of our children. 
We are responsible for God-centered, loving, prayerful, sacrificial, Bible-saturated training. But in the end, you walk up to the edge of that infinite gulf and you plead, Oh my God, open their heart. The second reason I stress the difference between teaching and knowing is that their responsibility of knowing is that from which the last two stages come. What they know, what they embrace as true, is now what gives rise to these last two stages that I close with. Stage number five. Our calling is that our children might put their confidence in God. We know we can't make confidence happen, that is certainly to be our goal. That is certainly to be our goal. Verse 7, that they should put their confidence in God. God has testified. God has taught. There's been a deposit of truth. We have taught it. They have known it. And out of that knowledge comes confidence in God. The aim of all true education is not stocking the mind with truth. The aim beyond that and through that is confidence in God, not in self. I think the essence of American education is pretty much self-confidence. The essence of Christian education is God-confidence. Therein lies the major difference. All true learning, all true knowledge reveals our dependence on God. If what you are learning leads you to self-sufficiency, it is a flawed learning. This is what keeps learning from leading to pride. If your learning leads you to pride, you have a flawed perception of reality. True learning reveals your dependence, your childlikeness, your need of God and His glorious greatness. And thus it humbles. And if you find yourself boasting, then you're like the archaeologist who, with his skill, is digging and he finds a spectacular treasure of a piece of art 3,000 years old that's almost flawless in its preservation and quickly he puts it in a locked case and goes on a tour lecturing about his digging skills and never opens the case lest anybody have their attention diverted from his skill to that beauty. True knowledge and true education opens the box, lifts up the truth that is not us but God and hides and is happy to just diminish. He becomes great. We become small. That's what happens in all true education. As reality, as truth is lifted up, teachers that glory in the truth. And I think that can happen for a math teacher. Yes. I think there are humble math teachers and there are proud math teachers. And you know the difference? You can smell it. The humble math teachers revel in the wonder of math. And proud math teachers like to revel in the wonder of their teaching this wonder. 
get students to see how clever they are, how good they are. It's really sad because it's bad for the students and it's bad for them. The really happy way to live is to find something great and enjoy it. Enjoy your lawyering and your doctoring and your carpentering and your homemaking and your teaching and your nursing and, and just revel in, in the stuff that God has done out there. And you get a chance to just be a little part of reality. So stage five is confidence in God. Lead our children to confidence in God. Finally. Stage six, a life of obedience. See number seven, verse seven again. That they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. All true education leads to a life of obedience. Externally, outwardly. But... That obedience flows from confidence in God. Oh, how wrong is the educational enterprise and philosophy that makes bringing children into external conformity to a set of rules the goal. False, wrong, deadly. The goal is children whose hearts know the ultimate beauty of reality in God and His salvation and His wonderful work on their behalf who grow in tremendous confidence in the promises of this great God, or as we call it, living by faith in future grace. And out of that faith and that confidence, they obey the commands to love their neighbor and love their enemy and do justice in society. That's a world apart from external conformity to because mom and dad say so or because the pastor says so. We work from the inside out. And you know the reason? It's because the reason the universe is created is to externalize the glory of God. So education has to do with the ultimate purposes for why this world was made. This world was made by a God who did not need it. God did not need you. He did not need the universe. He did not need planet Earth. He did not need the stars and the galaxies. He did not need anything. He was perfectly happy in the fellowship of the Trinity and the overflow of his love said, I just can't keep this to myself. I will externalize my glory for the enjoyment of a people. And education aims to externalize the glory of God through transformed children who by their obedience radiate God in the world. So if my little daughter someday says, Daddy, why am I here? Why do I exist? I will take an hour and unfold for her the purposes of externalizing the glory of God through her uniqueness. That's why she's here. To externalize the glory of God for others to see. Marvelous. Now, here's my conclusion from these six stages. God is calling Bethlehem, I believe, to a new kind of partnership between church and parents. Because the more I reflect on this, the more burden and, and uh, wonder I see in the calling of parenthood and the more challenges and pains and frustrations and needs I see in the issue of parenting. The primary agent in the calling 
of the New Covenant community to rear children who have confidence in God is the parent. The primary agent is the parent. But those parents, we know this, we parents, we all know this, parents cannot do what we're called to do without the help of the covenant community. You try it. Parents need a deep confidence in God. Parents need help in keeping God's centered vision in their parenting alive. Parents need motivation to persevere year after year, year in and year out. Parents need encouragement when everything seems to go wrong. Parents need relief from time to time in the strain of parenting. Parents need help in boiling down the big book of God into essential, transferable, age-appropriate portions. Parents need help in teaching subjects and skills where they lack expertise and time. Parents need community reinforcement of truth and moral values where it seems like the whole society is making a fool of them. Parents need solutions to tough problems that they run into with their children. Parents need camaraderie in sharing of accumulated wisdom in rearing children. Parents need correction when everybody except them can see there's a problem with their kids. Parents need prayer because God is finally the only adequate teacher. Parents are the main thing under God for children. But God means parenting to happen in community because we can't do it by ourselves. And he means for parents and single people as part of this community to join in ministering to children through the community as well. Parents and singles who teach. Parents and singles who oversee. Parents and singles who sing. Parents and singles who plan and carry out activities. Parents and singles who open their homes. Parents and singles who model all that we are aiming at in our educational mission. I want to close by praying for the parents here, especially. I know we all need prayer in this regard, but I want the parents in a moment to stand. Let me tell you who the parents are. If you have living children, 60 years old or six weeks old in the womb, unless you don't want to tip off being pregnant You're a parent if you have a child growing in you. So if you're a parent, would you stand? Moms and dads. All of us, we're seated and I would like to pray for you right now. Just look around. This is an amazing thing. It's a big challenge that we're into here. And those who are sitting have a tremendous hand in this. A tremendous hand as single people or as married people who never had children. Let's pray for them. Father, I pray for myself and for this standing group that all this vision that I have tried to lay out so briefly would take root in us and that you would work. Oh God, let there be a day of great blessing upon our children at Bethlehem in these days to come. Shape this ministry. Shape our parenting shape our Sunday school, shape our club, shape things we've never dreamed of here to bring to pass this purpose of raising children who are confident and obedient in God. Now, why don't all of you stand? Would you please?
We'll be praying for a few minutes between the services here, teams, and I'll be here. If any of your parents feel a special burden you need prayer for, or any of you single people or married folks who have burdens that relate or don't relate to this, we'll take a few minutes and pray with you. Father, dismiss us now with a sense of expectation, and don't let us forget these words. Build what we have seen into our personal lives and into the life of this church. In Jesus' name I pray, and all the people said, Amen.